0: Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. If you're here for the first time today, for the summer, I'm preaching through the end of the book of Matthew, and our sermons are available online. You can either go to the chapel website or iTunes and and download them if you're interested in that sort of thing. I encourage you to do that. Matthew chapter 20, the the title is A Contrast of, of request. Have you ever had anybody ask you for something, and even in the way they asked you, they were kind of asking you as if you didn't have a choice but to comply with their request. It's scary when somebody says, I need to tell you something, but you've got to promise me you won't tell anybody else. That, that's what I mean. It, it's like there's an impl- implied, they're asking you something that you're already agreeing to before you even hear what the request is. Now, my kids have learned, don't ask me this question. Don't ask me, Dad, can I ask you a question? Because the answer to that is, yes, you just did. Have a nice day. You need, need to say, Dad, can I ask you two questions? This is the first one, and there's one following. What we're looking at this morning in, in a contrast of request is really Jesus encounters two groups of people that are asking Him for something. The first one is, is a real proud, arrogant request. The other one is a very humble request for mercy, really. A contrast of requests. Let me read the first part of the passage beginning in chapter 20 and verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making request of Him. And He said to her, What do you wish? She said to Him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of Mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Let me give you the context of this request. Jesus, earlier in the chapter, same chapter, a few verses before this, has been telling them, for the third time, He tells them, here's what's about to happen. We're going up to Jerusalem. They're on their way. They've left Galilee. They're near Jericho now. About to head to Jerusalem. In a few days, He would be arrested. What He's just told them is, I'm going to be turned over to the chief priest and the scribes. I'm going to be then handed over to... To the Gentiles, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be crucified. And the last thing he said right before the then in this passage is, but on the third day I'll rise from the dead. Now, every time he unpacked that scenario, he got a little more specific. But the response of the disciples is always amazing. It it was either something like, no, that's not the way it's going to go down. Or right after that, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John come up and say, well, let me make a request of you. You're talking about your kingdom. I want you to grant my request. And that's really what's implied in what she says. She bows down, makes request of him. Now, something that's interesting about this woman is we probably know her name. I believe this is Salome that we see at the cross. And you've got to read and connect the dots between Matthew, Mark, and John's gospel to recognize this was probably the mother of Mary. Excuse me, the sister of Mary. The wife of Zebedee, the mom of James and John. And that's important for a reason I'll unpack in just a few minutes. But if you look at who's around the cross, it's always Mary Magdalene. And this woman is described, I think, three different ways. One as Mary's sister. Another as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And another as Salome. I think it's the same person. And I think that's why she thinks, I can come and ask this question of my relative. And so she bows down, makes a request. In other words, she basically says, let me ask you to do something for me. And Jesus says, what is it you'd like to ask? She says command. In other words, make it so. Speak it into being that these two sons of mine can sit on your right or your left. Now, the way Mark portrays this account, he doesn't even mention the mother. Because when Jesus addresses the situation, he doesn't talk to her. He talks to the two boys and basically says, I know she's here on your behalf, so I'm going to address you. You don't know what you're asking. Mark's gospel is the same account But it just says the sons came. So apparently they had been talking. And folks, we know from earlier in the Gospels and later in the Gospels, the disciples had been fighting over this anyway. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Well, it's going to be Jesus. Just hope you get there. So it command that. It's interesting, John would sit next to Jesus at the Last Supper. It's also interesting that Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. He addresses them directly, and he asks this question, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, folks, they didn't understand the fullness of that, but when Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup, the word that he uses means, I'm drinking this in its entirety. What was that cup? Folks, it was the cup of the wrath of God for the sin of people. In fact, it's the same cup that Jesus mentions in the Garden of Gethsemane. After the Last Supper, where, by the way, even at the Last Supper, the disciples have been debating who's going to be the greatest, and Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. They go with him to the garden. He leaves some kind of at the entrance to the garden. He takes the James, John, and Peter a little further in and says, wait right here and pray for me. He goes deeper into the garden and hears his prayer. Father, if there's any way this cup can pass for me, Let it be so. But then what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew when he told him, I'm about to go die, he knew what that entailed. It wasn't just play-acting at the cross. He was going to experience the weight of the sin of the world on him. And so when he says to these two brothers, James and John, you don't know what you're asking. And then he says, it's not really mine to give. This has been prepared beforehand By my Father, Sovereign God the Father will determine who sits where in heaven. And then he says, my cup, you shall drink. Because he says, hey, we're able. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able? And they say, oh, yeah, we're able. Mighty brave talk before the event happens. Because what's going to happen a few days after this? Jesus is going to be arrested. And for the most part, the disciples flee. Peter's going to deny him three times. Even though all the disciples are saying, I'm not going to betray you, they're not only going to betray him. They're not going to be there to drink the cup. Now it's interesting, Jesus says, my, my cup you shall drink. Speaking specifically to James and John, what's going to happen to them later? James will be the first discipled, martyred for the cause of Christ. In fact, it's in Acts chapter 12, if you want to jot that down. 1 and 2, it says, Now, about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James the brother of John put to death with a sword. Then it's interesting, right after that, the passage following, it says when he sees how much this pleased some people, he starts going after Peter. So James is going to drink a cup of death. But he's not drinking the cup Jesus is drinking because he's drinking a cup that's filled with the sin of the people he's dying for. John would kind of be the last disciple to die. He's going to be exiled on the island of Patmos. That's John. It's not mine to give. It's been prepared to by the Father. So, what were they banking on? What, what did they make their requests based on? And I want you to ask yourself the question when we come and ask God for stuff, there's a right way and a wrong way. We'll get to the right way later, but let me just tell you the wrong way. They were banking on the fact we've been following Jesus for three years, we're in the inner circle. They had been among the three disciples taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Later, they're going to be among the three disciples that go a little deeper with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've earned it. They're also banking on perhaps a family relationship. Come on, cuz. And maybe they're even asking, they're banking on the fact we're asking first. They've been fighting over who's going to be the first, but maybe they're the first ones to ask, and they get their mama to do the asking for us. You know, and maybe they were going with that theological position of if you snooze, you lose. So they're hoping maybe because they've been faithful followers for three years, or maybe because they've got a family relationship, or maybe just they're the first ones to ask. Jesus has got to grant it. Well He doesn't. The arrogant request always implies that somehow you deserve it. And I'll just tip you off. <laughs> We come to Christ humbly, acknowledging really we don't deserve anything. In fact, what do we deserve? As a sinner, what do I deserve? Well, the Bible says I deserve death. And yet, that's why Jesus is going to gulp down the entire cup of God's wrath in my place. More on that later. But look at the responses. There's really two responses. The first one's the disciples. When the other disciples hear this, because they're right there, they hear mom come up, ask on behalf of their son, it ticks them off. It says they became indignant, literally to be greatly afflicted, to be pained, to be angry. Why do you think they were angry? Listen, they weren't angry because they were thinking, wow, how unspiritual of those two. No, they were angry because they thought, why didn't we think of that? They were angry because they thought, I deserve to be first. I want to be sitting in a position of power when Jesus comes into his kingdom. They're angry at the two brothers. And so Jesus teaches them about rank in his kingdom as opposed to the kingdom they're familiar with. Nearly every government in the world at the time of Christ was a tyrant. And so they understood one person dictator has absolute power, and they lord it over the people. He literally says, their leaders control the people with literally military might and power. And their great men exercise authority to have full privilege over their Great people play the role of tyrant, and Jesus said, but it's not that way among you. Jesus is saying, you've got to understand, in the kingdom of God, it doesn't work that way. Now, it could work that way, because God's all-powerful. But how does God work? Jesus says, whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant. Literally, it's the word deacon. Whoever wishes to be great will become an attendant, or literally a table waiter, is what the word means one who renders service. It's not a term of dishonor, but it just described the lowest level of hired help. How do you feel about being a servant? Most of us understand the role of servant, but a lot of times we don't like being treated like a servant. Let me just tell you, if you serve, sometimes you're going to get treated like a servant. Well, who are you compared to? Jesus. Jesus says, you want to be great, you need to be a servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Different word. Servant is the lowest level of paid help. Slave is somebody's at the whim of the master. They don't get paid, they just get to live. So Jesus uses those two terms to say, here's how you rank in the kingdom of heaven. In the world, if you want to be great, just have military power. In the kingdom of heaven. Serve, be a slave now I want you to get something one of the people that heard this was Peter and in Second Peter that's the way he describes himself bond servant when Paul wrote he wrote Paul a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and that's what Jesus is calling for and he says just as in other words exactly like me The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Philippians chapter 2, jot that down. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Paul writes, says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, follow my example. A few days from now, he's going to be celebrating the Passover, the Last Supper with his disciples. What does he do? While the disciples are still trying to figure out who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, Jesus takes his robe off, girds himself with a towel, and kneels and washes their feet. Picture of servant. And not long after that, he's going to hang on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. That's Jesus, the suffering servant. And then, he says, I not only came to serve, but to give my life a ransom for many. I hope you get this. This one line. Jesus came to to give his life as a ransom. In their day and age, that word was used when you paid off somebody who was a slave and you bought them out of slavery to give them freedom. That's what Jesus did. We were slaves to sin. Through the death on the cross, he paid the penalty for sin so that through trusting Christ as our Lord and Savior, I can be free from the penalty of sin. In our day, the word... It's probably more used in a hostage situation. Somebody takes somebody and says, you got to give me X amount of money called ransom. But either way, it's buying back your freedom. That's what Jesus came to do. And there's a three-letter word in that statement. He gave His life a ransom for many. For, meaning in your place instead of, as a substitute for. Again, we deserve the death ourselves. But Jesus died in our place as a substitute for us. And it says for many. Not universal atonement. But for many. Who is it for? It's for those who trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. Jesus gave His life as a ransom. Jesus died in your place. It was for you. That's the arrogant request, and that's Jesus' response. The disciples' response was indignation. Jesus' response was, let me teach you about greatness. And then I think the picture we see is he's on his way out of Jericho in the following verses. Let me just read verses 29 through 34. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, the Son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. And immediately they regained their sight and followed Him. What a great picture of the mercy of Christ. He's on His way out of Jericho. Where is He heading? He's heading 15 miles away to Jerusalem. Jericho, still back down kind of in the desert, straight uphill to Jerusalem 15 miles. He's on His way to the cross and He takes time to still minister to the needs of people. Large crowds following him. Two blind men sitting by the road. Matthew doesn't give us their names. Mark gives us the name of one of them. He gives us the name Bartimaeus. You say, well, why does Mark only mention one? Well, it's because Mark knew one of their names. Because Peter had told Mark. And it doesn't mean there was only two in one episode, one in the other. It's just, hey, we know this guy. And because he became a follower of Christ, he's saying, hey, this is Bartimaeus, the son of... Timaeus. You know him. Go check the account he has. You notice that he comes to church regularly. Well, he used to couldn't see. That's Bartimaeus. So get the picture. Jesus, large crowds following him, going out of town. Two beggars who were blind hear him coming. Know that it's Jesus. And they cry out. In fact, I love the word that is used here for cry out. It's the word croak. The sound that a raven makes. Not not a frog. But this loud cry. And what happens? The rest of the crowd says, Hush! Be quiet. Literally, mute yourself. (laughs) When I read that, I thought, These men are blind. At least let them talk. They can't run up to Jesus. They can't follow Him like you are. They can't get their needs met face to face because they can't see. They can't get there. So they just hear Jesus is coming by and it says with a loud, I think they're shouting at the top of their lungs. And the people say, Hush! Now, why do they do that? Why does the crowd tell these two guys to be quiet? I assume it's because they were selfish. They were in a better position physically, socially economically, and every other way than these two men. But they're following Jesus because they want to get theirs. And they don't want Jesus distracted by two beggars. So just be quiet. And what does the Bible say? They cried out all the more. Put yourself in their sandals. If you're thinking, this is my one opportunity to see again, because they regained their sight, so it means at one point they had seen. So they knew what they were missing. Now, how long they'd been blind, I don't know. But these two men for a while could not see, and they knew Jesus could do something about it. And so when they're told to hush, they don't obey the crowd. They just scream a little louder. And Jesus stops. And I love this. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Why did he ask that question? Because these were two beggars. He gave them an opportunity to make a request and demonstrate faith. They could have simply said, have you got some change so that I can buy some bread? But that's not what they say. Jesus stops and says, what would you request of me? And they said, we want our eyes opened. Literally, we want to be able to see again. And it said that Jesus touched their eyes. It is amazing how people, how Jesus healed people. Sometimes Jesus could heal somebody without even being next to them. He could just pronounce healing. Other times he would heal them without touching them. One time he spit on the ground. Remember that? Spit on the dust of the ground, made a little mud and dabbed it on their eyes. Why did he do that? In this case, he doesn't do that. Well, for one thing, he's always teaching through healing. When he heals the person where he makes mud and puts it on their eyes, what was he, when did he do that? He did it on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders are ticked off that he would heal somebody on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is teaching them the purpose of the Sabbath. In this case, he just goes over and touches them. Touches their eyes. And immediately, at once, directly, instantly, they regained their sight. And then look what they did. They followed him. They followed Jesus. Can I close by just making some application from that? How do we come to Jesus? The same way Jesus called everybody in the New Testament follow me. What's keeping you from following Jesus? Jeff sang about it. We sang about it. We once were blind. Maybe not physically. But folks, there's been an opaqueness and a barrier over our spiritual sight that God wants to remove. I once was blind, but now I see. Those two men could sing it. But if you're a child of God today, you could sing it as well. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were spiritually blind. And Jesus took the blinders off. they call for mercy. Mercy. The Christian life is based on that. Mercy means not receiving what you deserve. Mercy. Again, maybe you aren't physically blind, but folks, we were needy for a Savior. And we did not deserve any of it. We can only come to Jesus humbly. Same way, begging for mercy. And asking for grace. Grace. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. And that's grace. None of us come to Jesus based on our effort, our performance, the fact we've been going to church for 100 years, the fact we were here today. We go based on the shed blood of Christ and the fact that we are desperately needy for a Savior. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. So let me ask you that question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've come to Jesus needy and acknowledging, I need a Savior? Today could be that day of salvation. If you're here this morning and that's you, you just realize, I need to trust Christ as my Savior today, then I'm going to encourage you talk to somebody before you leave this place. I'll be at the back door. Perhaps you're here with a group, you go to one of your leaders. And just say, today I need to trust Christ. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel, that it's good news. And that you're able to take someone that was blind and allow them to see. I pray that would be true spiritually for all of us. Because we cry out for mercy, not from an arrogant heart that we deserve it but from a humble heart that acknowledges, without you, I'm lost. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. In Christ's name.